Well, uh, good morning again. Um, for those of you that don't know, my name is David. I'm one of the elders here at City Reform Church. Pastor Chris is taking a well-deserved two-week break, and so I have the privilege of um, bringing God's word this morning. Jim Kirk, um, our brother at uh, Geneva Campus Church in uh, Madison, will be uh, preaching next week. So, so we go now to um, scripture. The scripture text for today is from Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues stretch through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. The word of the Lord. During last week's Prayers of the People, Nick uh, reminded us of the range of emotions that are present in the Easter account. We should include in that list fear and doubt, as both are lurking around the corner of the Gospel's resurrection account. From our sacred reading, we see Jesus appearing to a group of disciples who are gripped with fear and hiding behind locked doors. Just a week after the resurrection, we see Thomas doubting his friends' wild claims that they have seen the risen Jesus even up until the point when Jesus provides his disciples with the Great Commission, just before his ascension, we learn from Matthew 28 that some still doubted. Now, the resurrection certainly was a category-shattering event, so perhaps we can understand the close connection between resurrection and doubt. But the truth is that doubt does not arrive on the scene for the first time with the resurrection. Instead, is a recurring theme that runs throughout Scripture. Doubt is a shared human experience from the time of rebellion in the garden to our very present moment. In fact, the Western church right now is undergoing an intense period of doubt. 
The evangelical world has experienced several prominent leaders walk away from the faith altogether, and others have been marred by moral scandals. More and more, millennials are wrestling with the faith that they have inherited. The current cultural moment, most commonly referred to as deconstruction, has set off intense debate within Christian circles about how we are to respond to doubt. How are we to understand doubt, and what are we to do with it? Psalm 73, our text for today, helps us get at this question. The psalm is attributed to Asaph, founder of one of the temple choirs. While the authorship and dates are debated by scholars, what is clear is that the psalmist is writing during a time of trial in the life of Israel. These trials are acutely contrasted by the seeming prosperity and ease of life experienced by Israel's adversaries. This contrast creates a crisis of faith for the author. What follows is a deeply personal journey through doubt that would end up becoming part of the Hebrew Psalter. And it couldn't be more relevant to us today. We learned three things about doubt from the psalm. First, the source of doubt. Second, the direction of doubt. And finally, the resolution of doubt. Um, the source, the direction, and the resolution. First, the source of doubt. And we learned that doubt really is like an onion with many layers. Doubt is often bound up in personal suffering as a source. We don't have to look very far in scripture to see evidence of this. And it's clear that the psalmist in this text is suffering, possibly physically, without doubt, without question, emotional anguish. But to understand the nature of the psalmist's doubt, we have to dig a little deeper. The layer we find underneath personal suffering is the question of fairness. It was not just that the psalmist suffered, but that his enemies prospered. As he states, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But we must peel back a third layer to get to the real root of the psalmist's doubt. What we find is that the unjust or unfair experience serves as a direct challenge to the psalmist's orthodoxy. The traditional belief system is stated directly in verse one for us. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. The word truly in Hebrew is an intensifying adverb of affirmation. Commentators point out that it functions much like a creed or a confession. Tradition taught at that time that material prosperity was an affirmation of God's approval and blessing according to the Old Testament covenant. This, tradu this tradition was rooted in, in some truth, to be sure, and it's expressed in scripture. You can look at Deut Deuteronomy chapter 29. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all you do. The psalmist need only look to Psalm 1, where it talks about the righteous being like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that the righteous does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The psalmist is therefore attempting to reconcile his experience with that of Psalm 1 and others. Prosperity in that time was not understood purely in spiritual terms. It was material. Therefore, the broader belief system, the orthodoxy of Israel, was that a righteous life would usually lead to blessing and material abundance, while disobedience led to disaster. This is why Job's friends had no category for Job's suffering, other than he must have sinned and been disobedient. That was the only way to reconcile the traditional belief that truly God is good to those who are pure in heart with Job's actual lived experience. So the flourishing of the wicked called into question this broader belief system that was operative in the psalmist's life, which in turn called into question belief in God himself. As the psalmist states, 
All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Doubt, therefore, often arises out of a crumbling belief system. The psalmist's doubts grow out of a challenge to traditional views around the relationship of faith and earth, earthly blessing. Despite the shattering of this belief system in the New Testament through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and the call for all of us to um, carry our cross, it still is too uncommon in the West to perhaps equate faith with blessing. While we may easily dismiss prosperity uh, gospel preaching as obviously being out of bounds, our lives often reflect an assumption that material blessing is a sign of God's approval. Whether it's our bank accounts, careers, health, or societal ills, we often implicitly interpret our faith in light of earthly circumstances. And perhaps this gets at the broader belief system embedded within Western Christianity, the belief in progress. While our own specific reform tradition makes it clear that full restoration will only come at Christ's return, it can be easy temptation to conflate our tradition's emphasis on God's renewal of all creation with our own specific context and specific efforts. After all, we are called to participate in the cultural mandate as new creatures. Even if you reject America as a Christian nation to be a myth, is it not possible that we unknowingly interpret the history of America through the lens of our tradition, equating progress with cosmic renewal? Perhaps this viewpoint went unchallenged insofar as Christianity has coexisted comfortably within America, but how do we make sense of a country that no longer aligns with what we consider to be the Judeo-Christian ethics, or a country that seems to have intolerated injustice for far too long, or the church for that matter. What we are experiencing right now in our cultural moment feels like a great rupture. And I think that for many of us, regardless of your particular politics, the rupture challenges some core assumptions that may have become operative in our lives. Many of us are left discouraged by a country we no longer recognize and lament its direction, Others of us wrestle with where allegiance to country ends and our personal faith actually begins. And we begin to question whether we've been sold a bag of goods in the form of an evangelical culture that is now crumbling around us. The pandemic has caused many, many of us to suffer physically, emotionally, and economically. It also appears that the gap between the haves and the haves-nots have only increased. The past year has also completely leveled many of our traditional belief systems, leaving us disoriented like the psalmist. And it's out of this disoriented state that doubt often arises, tempting us to ask, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? So we see the sources of doubt are often multifaceted, but if we dig deep enough, we'll likely find cracks in our own traditional belief systems. And as we'll see, this can be a mercy. This leads to the second point, the direction of doubt. God uses doubt to lovingly move us into deeper relationship with himself. God uses doubt to lovingly move us into deeper relationship with himself. Doubt is not the same as unbelief, and this distinction is critical. The psalmist goes so far as to believe that all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He reached the point of questioning the very existence and value of his faith. And yet his, he says his, his feet had almost stumbled. His steps nearly slipped. In all of his questioning, he had not reached the point of actually stumbling or falling. The point is one that has long been held within the Christian tradition, 
but unfortunately is often overlooked. Doubt is not the same as unbelief. Friends, I just want to state this clearly up front. You do not need to be ashamed of your doubts. The Christian life is an examined life. The question is not whether you will doubt. You will. But in which direction your doubts will move you? Closer or further away from God? Psalm 73 shows how God uses doubt to move us closer to him. The movement of the psalm is from belief in a distant God towards intimate relationship. The writer uses several different names for God throughout the psalm. At the height of the writer's doubt, as expressed in the non-believer scoffing, is there knowledge in the Most High? The word for Most High suggests a deity far removed and un uninterested in human beings. Contrast this then with the end of the psalm, where the author affirms it is good to be near God. The word for God used here at the end is a special term belonging solely to the chosen people of God. It signifies covenant, personal relationship, and refuge. Thus we see that the doubt process moved the psalmist into greater intimacy with God. Movement with God is made possible only when the shaky foundations of our faith are first identified. Notice how the psalmist moves from being vexed over the material prosperity early in the process to the statement at the end, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. As one commentator puts it, quote, faith has matured in the process. At first, the emphasis fell on gifts that the deity dispensed like Santa Claus to all those who have been good. The ultimate understanding of divine goodness soars to new spiritual heights. From this lofty perch, the psalmist understands that the supreme good is the privilege of being near to God. God desires nearness with his people, and doubt can be a merciful process he uses to identify the shaky foundations of our faith and then graciously redirect us towards a foundation that cannot be shaken. In this sense, doubt is like the sensation of pain. Pain is not good in and of itself. However, pain can be instrumental in moving us towards safety. To leave your hand on a burning stove for anything beyond a brief moment um, could be catastrophic to your health. It is a sensation of pain that redirects you away from danger and towards safety. God is revealing to the author that his faith is more rooted in a belief system than it is in Yahweh. The crumbling of our foundations is extremely painful, to be sure, but it is a necessary first step towards our highest good which is intimacy and nearness with God. Uh, Oz Guinness, a, a popular um, author, wrote in the 1970s something that I think rings as true today as then. He writes, Long-standing supports are crumbling, and many of the accepted assumptions of normal Western life are being shaken, such as social stability and a reasonable prosperity. We are forced to see the true foundations of our faith, that is our practical rather than professed faith, our day-to-day -day trust, our matter-of-fact belief, our down-to-earth reliance. Far better to be tested today and have chance to put right what is shown to be wrong than to be tested tomorrow and be found wanting. Doubt forces us to take a hard look at the true foundations of our faith. That these foundations are shaky doesn't necessarily mean that they are completely untrue. The creed in Psalm 73 was rooted in truth, the faith you grow up with is a beautiful gift, but God always wants to draw us further up and further in. Therefore, doubt can be a means by which God graciously redirects us towards firmer foundations.
So there can be value in doubt. However, we need to be clear that doubt can also move us further away from God. It's important to recognize that while the psalmist had not entered into unbelief, he says that his steps nevertheless had nearly slipped. And this is because doubt is a two-lane highway. The exit ramps are either um, God or unbelief. Um, for our purposes today, we're not going to get into the distinction between doubt and unbelief, as the comforting doctrine of assurance is a, you know, a whole other sermon. Suffice to say, though, that the fact you are worried about doubt slipping towards unbelief is probably a good sign um, that your spiritual nervous system is still working. If you leave your hand over the fire for too long, you will lose the ability to sense pain, along with any sense of urgency to redirect away from danger. It is the same with doubt. Lingering too long will dull your senses um, in a way that can counteract a slide towards unbelief. The point is, is that we should neither fear nor celebrate doubt. Take it very seriously, but do not let it paralyze you. If doubt is a two-lane highway, how do we move in the direction of faith towards God? And this leads to our last point, the resolution of doubt. Now, I want to be upfront that this is a merciful process that God works out. It is not up to us. Doubt is also a messy process. It is not always a one-time thing, uh, and it doesn't always have clear starting and stopping points. This is not a three-step program. Nevertheless, Psalm 73 does teach us three ways to resolve our doubts. And the first is to argue with them, argue with your doubts. Perhaps one of my favorite lines in all of Scripture is verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. A deterrent to un unbelief is to subject your doubts to the same line of questioning that you are requiring of God. It's one thing to say, how can God know? Or is there a God? It's quite another to come up with an alternative. For it's a bit, it is a bit misleading to characterize the two exit ramps on the highway of doubt as either faith or unbelief. When we say unbelief, what we mean is a resolute denial of the historic Christian faith. However, this is not to say that such an individual lacks faith. It's just that they have faith in something else. Doubt is not a destination. At some point, you have to exit, and the question you are then faced with is which faith exit you are going to take. Are you trusting your reason? In order to know anything, we must first assume things in faith. Have you concluded there is nothing but the here and now? That also requires a good deal of faith. Uh, Alice and I read uh, a book, A Severe Mercy, aloud together shortly after we were married. It's a beautiful memoir about a young couple who journeyed together from skepticism towards faith. The memoir descri describes this line of questioning as a critical junction, juncture in their faith journey. Quote, there's a gap between the probable and the proved. How is I to cross it? If I were to stake my whole life on the risen Christ, I wanted proof, I wanted certainty. I wanted to see him eat a bit of fish. I wanted letters of fire across the sky. I got none of those. And I continued to hang about on the edge of the gap. It was a question of whether I was going to accept him or reject him. But there was a gap behind me as well. Perhaps the leap to acceptance was a horrifying gamble, but what of the leap to rejection? There might be no absolute certainty that Christ was God, but there was no certainty that he was not. I could not reject Jesus. There was only one thing to do once I had seen the gap behind me. I turned away from it and flung myself over the gap toward Jesus. To ask the question, whom have I in heaven but you, is to recognize that there is a gap 
both before us and behind us. It's not a question of whether or not we'll take a leap of faith, but instead in which direction. To ask this question is to force us to come up with an alternative. Indeed, the book of Ecclesiastes does just this as a teacher explores all other possible avenues. As we learned from our series, all of these alternatives lead only to dead ends. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you, is an invitation to argue with all the competing desires for your heart. It's a dare to find a more compelling or beautiful alternative to that which is described in Scripture. This is captured in John chapter 6, when Jesus asked Peter whether he too will join those followers who decided to leave Jesus. Peter's response, Lord, to whom shall we go? The same question is posed to all of us. If not God, to whom shall we go? This is, what, this is what it means to argue with our doubts. So first, we have to argue with our doubts. Second, we must process doubts in community. Commentators point out that the last line of defense preventing the psalmist from renouncing his faith completely is the community of believers. Doubt seems to have run its course in verses 13 to 14 with the apparent conclusion that faith is futile. However, verse, in verse 15, the psalmist writes, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. The last thing that keeps the psalmist from taking a leap towards unbelief is the community. Psalm 73 de depicts doubt as a process that's in tension between a personal journey and a community trip. Doubt is both deeply personal and communal. What does this mean exactly? I think first we need to recognize what this is not saying. The psalmist is not saying to keep your doubts hidden from others. He is not saying don't speak up. Doubt should not be the elephant in the room that no one talks about. Consider for a moment that this diary of sorts, depicting a deeply personal journey of doubt, ended up becoming part of the Hebrew Psalter that formed the backbone for corporate worship in the life of Israel. The writer's journey of doubt was instrumental in the life of the community of faith. Unfortunately, the sad reality is that the church is often the last place where people process doubt. A 2017 survey showed that most, the most common response when Christians experience doubt is to pull away from community. Nearly 50% stopped at attending church. There's probably a good reason. The church is often an inhospitable place to process doubt, as we're quick to assign blame, shame, and quick to judge. If you have felt hurt or abandoned by the church in this regard, I am truly sorry. As a church, we must work hard to create space for people to process doubt. The flip side is that when we experience personal doubt ourselves, we should strive to process it within the context of community. This means our specific church community as well as our tradition. There's nothing wrong with questioning whether your faith is your own or that of your parents. There's nothing wrong with wrestling with specific doctrines within a tradition. But there is danger in doing so in isolation. Community and tradition serve as guardrails against us remaking God in our own image. Moreover, it is a seductive lie to believe that you can doubt in a vacuum that is free of, any, free of influence of any tradition. C.S. Lewis talks about the inevitability of tradition. He compared Christianity to a hallway and traditions to rooms that come off the hallway. A hallway is not a comfortable place to hang out for very long. It is in the room where one finds a warm fire, a bed, and comfort. 
The point being that closing a door to one room of tradition is likely to lead to opening the door to another. There's a temptation to view doubt as a personal journey to discover my own truth. That's actually not possible. You will enter another room. In order to decipher what is true and authentic about your faith and what you believe, as opposed to what is culturally inherited, you will use some sort of standard. You will need to hold your faith up to some kind of light, to view it through some kind of lens. And that lens, in whatever form, is a tradition. Here's the point. There is no such thing as a purely personal faith journey. Your journey will be informed by community and tradition in one form or another. The psalmist chooses to examine his faith within his tradition. To be sure, some of his tra traditional views do change, but, but his tradition provides guide rails for his processing. In this sense, tradition can be a gift. It is very freeing. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 states that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Many have gone before us in this journey. Tradition does not have to be a hindrance. Instead, it can be a rich resource in God. Um, as I look back at my own life, I can uh, see God's merciful provision in this regard. Um, here's just one example. Uh, my sophomore year of college, I decided to quit football. Um, I had played organized sports up to that point for the past 15 years, and it was very much a part of my life and who I thought I was. And so it was a very disorienting time for me. Second semester that year, I decided to study abroad in Scotland. I probably chose a study abroad experience um, that was most familiar to me. Uh, but still, in Scotland, the cultural differences and rhythms were more than subtle. And I intentionally viewed the time as a chance to process my own faith and determine what I actually believe. I spent a lot of time reading, thinking, journaling, traveling, and it was a very formative time for me. However, I was not alone. Instead, my best friend also chose to study in Edinburgh that se semester. And while we did not room together and we developed different friends, friend groups, we nevertheless processed faith together. This is not to say that you should never study abroad by yourself, nor that this was some wise plan on my part. It wasn't. Um, but I look back on God's merciful provision in providing both individual space and community for me during a time when I needed it. So we must argue with our doubts and process them within community. However, these steps alone will never be enough to resolve doubt. Community may have helped stop, stop the progression towards unbelief, Yet at the same time, the psalmist says, when I thought how to understand it, it seemed to me a wearisome task. The psalmist describes his doubt as being like being in a fog. He writes, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. We will never think our way out of doubt, nor can community alone carry us through indefinitely. And this leads to the final point. What we most need is an encounter with God. All commentators agree that the entire psalm hinges on verse 17. Attempting to understand his experience was a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. There's disagreement among scholars as to what exactly the sanctuary of God is referencing, but it likely involves the temple. And so it's important to remind ourselves of the temple's role in the life of Israel. The temple represented the dwelling place of God in the Old Testament. In the garden, humanity enjoyed direct access and communion with God. However, after the fall, a flaming sword guarded the entrance back into the garden. Those who would encounter God would die by the sword. Starting with a mobile tabernacle, 
and culminating in temples, the Old Testament depicts construction of earthly places where God's presence could dwell, albeit only in part. The sanctuary was the actual throne room where God's name dwelled. This holy of holies was separated from the rest of the temple by a thick curtain and could only be entered once a year by the high priest. Just as a sword guarded entrance to the garden, so a high priest had to go under a sword with blood sacrifice in order to briefly access God's presence. Thus, the temple clearly communicates presence with God. Commentators don't agree on what exactly the psalmist experienced in the temple or that sacred space, but all do agree that this is the turning point and that involved an encounter with God. This encounter caused the writer to reformulate his understanding of the confession. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, is now linked not with material prosperity, but rather nearness with God. The psalmist has had an experience of God that has caused everything else to fade away. The foundation for his faith is no longer in the gifts, but in the gift giver. As he writes at the end, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. As life-changing as the, as the psalmist's encounter may have been, it was a mere shadow of what was to come, and it pales in comparison to what we can experience. If the hinge upon which Psalm 73 turns is entry into the sanctuary, then the hinge upon which human history turns is entry into the empty tomb. When Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, after coming under the sword to suffer for our sins, we are told that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The glory and presence of God that once remained behind a veil now exploded forth in the body of Jesus. The resurrected body of Jesus is the true temple. The incredible truth of the resurrection is that when we are united with Jesus by faith and through the Holy Spirit, we have direct access and communion with God. This is the turning point of all of human history. It is a truth that was no less astounding or shocking to the audience of the New Testament. The account in the Gospels we read it as strange and not something you would likely make up. In fact, if you were trying to make it up, there would be better ways to, to go about it. It is strange because it is true. For the Apostle Paul, the resurrection is the only foundation for our faith. For if Christ has not been raised, he writes, then our faith is in vain. Go home. That is why the apostle goes to such great lengths to make clear that the resurrection is a historical fact. Urging readers in 1 Corinthians to fact check with more than 500 people who encountered the risen Jesus. Friends, without the resurrection, we are left with a belief system. However, with the resurrection, we have God himself. Life in Christ made possible by the resurrection is the turning point for all of our doubts. We will go through times of doubt where we seemingly question everything. But in the midst of the fog, we will always have something to come back to. The historical truth of the resurrection is something we can always hang our hat on. This is what Os Guinness calls the square one principle. He writes, life can proceed with deceptive ease on the basis of a faith which was once vital, but has become so taken for granted that it is no longer authentic. At that stage, any pressure may be such a test for faith that the believer is faced with a choice. Give up or go back to square one. If we give up, then we abandon the faith altogether. 
But if we go back to square one, we will find a faith which is solid and secure. Friends, God made a way for us to once again draw near to him. He is bigger than our doubts. In fact, he will mercifully use our doubts to knock down all the crumbling foundations that may have supported our weak faith. It's a painful and yet gracious redirection. When God's rehab project of your heart is completed, the one true foundation remains standing. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. To him and him alone be all glory, honor, and praise now and forevermore. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are um, Lord over all, and that includes our, our troubled and anxious hearts. I pray you would be with us, Father, as we, those of us who have anxious hearts, um, filled with doubt, come to us, draw us um, closer to yourself. As a community, Lord, I pray that you would make us more gracious with one another. May this, this be a space that we, um, there, where there's space um, to process and to point one another towards the incredible truth of the resurrection. We thank you for that good gift and that we can always come back to it. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.